Welcome to everyone as you're joining the webinar. I turned the room on just a few minutes early so everyone can get in their seats. Um, if you happen to be listening to the um, audio audio only podcast, um, you might want to speed up about three minutes uh, and then the, we will start officially start our webinar presentation. Welcome to everyone as you're joining the webinar. We will um, get started in just about a minute as people uh, take their seats. Thank you. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. So welcome to today's SNEB webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us today. Um, for a webinar, uh, it's labeled part two. It's a follow-up to a presentation um, that was done uh, by the Division of International Nutrition Education and the uh, Division of Sustainable Food Systems back in April. Um, but I, I promise you will you will do not would not have needed to attend part one to um, get value out of part two. But I, I encourage you to go uh, back to the SNEB website and um, listen to that previous webinar when you have the chance. 
So a little housekeeping to get us started. Um, I am going to drop the handout for today's presentation in the chat box. Um, so you should be able to um, download that message and follow along with the slides for today's presentation. I have turned on the transcript option, so if that's helpful for you, for you please um, use that feature. Uh, we will take questions and um, feel free to type those at any point during the presentation. So we will be monitoring those um, and answering questions. Um, you're also encouraged to use the um, chat feature, um, whether that's to introduce yourself um, or comment on the presentation. Uh, we'll be watching both of those places for any um, comments or questions that we can address. Um, when I end the webinar today, there'll be a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars, which is exactly how um, the organizers got the ideas to um, orga organize this kind of follow-up session to the previous webinar. And then watch for an email, um, should be out to you by Thursday of this week with a link to the recording, um, your CEU certificate, and then the handout um, for your attendance today. So let me go ahead and turn things over um, to our moderator today. Um, Kelly Kogan is a doctoral candidate in health services research focusing on nutrition policy at George Mason University. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much. And hi, everyone. Thank you so much for attending our webinar. Um, I am the incoming chair of the Division of Sustainable Food Systems for SNEB. And we are partnering up today with, um, with Dine. Uh, Constance Gewa uh, was the person that we have worked with, as well as Stacia um, Nordren. Um, excuse me, um, Stacia Norden, and um, we thank both of you for working with us to organize this webinar. And as Rachel mentioned, this is really intended to be kind of a part two to a webinar that we did last April. And as Rachel said, you don't have to have seen the prior webinar to um, get something out of this webinar. But the idea here is to really do a deeper dive into um, one of the tools that is accessible to you as a nutrition educator um, to incorporate sustainability into your daily practice. And we have two esteemed speakers who will be presenting on that topic, um, talking a little bit about how they incorporate sustainability into their daily work. Um, and so um, they will be each presenting some slides. And then we are very hopeful that we can uh, really get a robust Q&A session going. We've um, extended the time for this webinar from the traditional 60 minutes to a 90 minutes with the hope that um, you will bring whatever questions you have to the speakers and there will be plenty of time for the speakers to address them. And we also um, will uh, allow people if they want to ask questions directly or engage in a dialogue to unmute themselves and do that. So that's really uh, what this webinar is intended to do. It's really to give you um, experience or, or to give you the resources you need to really start incorporating sustainability into your daily practices. So I'd like to first introduce the two speakers and then I will hand it off to the first one. Our first speaker is Marie Spiker. She is an assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health. 
Um, and she was recently a Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems Fellow with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Foundation. Dr. Spiker received her PhD and MSPH from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and is a registered dietitian. And our second speaker is uh, Roshan Delabandara. Uh, Mr. Delabandara works as a registered nutritionist in Sri Lanka, uh, integrating sustainability in agriculture, food security, nutrition, disaster management, and public health. And he is currently serving as the Sri Lanka chairperson for Scaling Up Nutrition People's Forum. And with that, I will hand, uh, um, I will hand the uh, Zoom session over to Dr. Spiker. Dr. Spiker. Great, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you all for having me. And I will get my screen share going. You should see a cute little, cute little dude there and then hopefully a full screen. And if anyone is not seeing my full screen slides, let me know, let me know in the chat or something. Um, all right, so I will go ahead and jump in here and I've already been, uh, already been introduced, but um, I will, will say again that a lot of what I'm talking about today, a lot of my experience in this area, it comes from my prior role as the Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems Fellow with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Foundation. And in that role, I worked for two years to help grow the capacity of nutrition and dietetics professionals uh, to, to work on advancing sustainable food systems. And I want to note up front that I'm sort of accustomed to speaking about um, dietetics from having worked in that world. But when I, when I talk about nutrition and dietetics, but I'm really talking about nutrition very broadly and referring to anyone who delivers nutrition, education, and services to either individuals or populations. And so um, sometimes I may slip and use some of the dietetics language, but just know that I'm speaking broadly about all who work in nutrition. And if you're, um, if you're tuning into this webinar, I, I am definitely speaking, speaking to you. Uh, and my disclosures are shown here. And in my 20 minutes here, I'm gonna talk about why nutrition students and professionals should care about sustainable food systems. I'll talk briefly about how I incorporate sustainability into my own work at the University of Washington. And then most importantly, I'm gonna share some highlights from the ICDA Sustainable Food Systems Toolkit, which is this great new resource, resource that I'm, I'm very excited to share about. And before I do a deeper dive into uh, some of the sustainability stuff, I wanna take a few steps back and talk about a couple of big picture items about how food systems are related to nutrition. And the first big picture thing I wanna share is that most countries are dealing with multiple burdens of malnutrition. So this graphic comes from the Global Nutrition Report, which is a great resource. And the United States, where I live, falls into this category you see on the bottom of a, a country that happens to be dealing with the burden of overweight only. But we do have countries like Nigeria and Malaysia that are dealing with not only overweight, but also stunting, an indicator of chronic undernutrition, and anemia, which here they're using as a, a proxy for multiple micronutrient deficiencies. We know that globally around one in three people are overweight or obese, one in five children worldwide are stunted, and micronutrient deficiencies, which some refer to as hidden hunger, are thought to affect around 2 billion globally. And another area where it's worth looking at the big picture is our global food supply. So 
Um, on average, we have enough calories and protein for a current global population, but we know that there are big inequities in how these resources are distributed, both within and between countries. And of course, we know that nutritional status requires more than just calories and protein. Most countries do lack an adequate supply of micronutrient-rich food sources. And we can look at just a few examples. So here in the US, we have available to us around 1.6 cups of vegetables per person per day. That's what's in the food supply. And that falls short of the recommended 2.5 cups. So if everyone decided tomorrow that we were going to consume our recommended amount of vegetables, we actually wouldn't have enough supply to do that, at least not tomorrow. And globally, around 45% of the world lives in countries that lack in their food supply. The World Health Organization target around 400 grams of fruits and vegetables per person per day. We can look at seafood as another example. And if we wanted to meet our recommendations here in the US, we would actually need to double our seafood supply, which we know would have um, pretty big implications for our marine environments. And this is all important because people can't follow our recommendations to eat nutritious foods if those foods are simply not in the food supply at all, or if they're not accessible or affordable. And another big picture item is that our food systems have a big environmental footprint. There's not ever going to be a scenario in which we can feed uh, large populations with a zero footprint, but agricultural practices account for a, around 11% of our greenhouse gas emissions. There's some differences in how people calculate that number. Um, about a third of our global land use and about 70% of all the water that is withdrawn for human purposes goes to, goes to agriculture. And then despite this big footprint, we waste about a third of everything that is produced globally. In high-income countries like the US, most of this occurs as food waste uh, downstream at the retail and consumer level. And some work that I did a few years ago with Ronnie Neff at Johns Hopkins showed that our discards in the US just at the retail and consumer levels contain the equivalent of two thirds of the iron recommendation for the country, 40% of our calcium and about a quarter of our fiber recommendations as just a few examples of the nutrients that we waste when we're wasting food. And it's worth noting that in low and middle income country settings, we see less food waste, which is what's happening downstream. And we see more food loss at the production stage and throughout the supply chain due to, uh, due to more resource constrained supply chains. And then my last big picture thing is that when we talk about sustainability in the food system, sustainability is multidimensional. Uh, there are many different sources that have converged around uh, the four domains of sustainability shown here, the environmental, economic, social, and health domains of sustainability. Um, this figure happens to be from the um, standards of professional performance for dietitians who work in the area of, uh, of sustainable food systems that I, I co-authored a couple of years ago. Um, but again, these four domains of, of sustainability and sustainable food systems are pretty widely accepted. And I really enjoy showing this to people who work in the nutrition space and highlighting that nutrition and health is one of these domains, because if a food system is not supporting human nutrition and health, that's not a sustainable food system. And when you find yourself talking about sustainability with other, uh, with patients and clients or with other professionals or, or people in the policy space, you might find that the term sustainability actually is, is quite polarizing. Everybody has their own definition of the term and their own kind of mental models that they're bringing to the table about what sustainability means. 
And I put together this slide to, to help us find some common ground about what we mean when we talk about sustainability in the context of food systems. What I wanna emphasize here is that sustainability is not just about one thing. So it's not exclusively about the environment, but it's about all of, all of these domains. It's not just about the future. It's not something to, it's not about only what happens in the future. It's also about what happens now. Uh, sustainability is not something that consumers should try to buy. It's not something that we purchase our way into. Oftentimes sustainability is about, could we purchase less? Could we consume less? And it's not something that only specialized practitioners should be thinking about. It's something that has broad, far-reaching relevance to anyone who works in nutrition. And then at the bottom here, I love these words from uh, Fred Kirschenman that sustainability is a it's process, not a prescription. So the way that we think about sustainability and the role of nutrition within that, it continues to evolve. And I find this framework of the four domains really helpful for reinforcing the point that Optimal nutrition and health are dependent on these other domains here and vice versa. And so this framework, I think it helps nutrition professionals to see the importance of not working in isolation. And it also helps our colleagues who might work in these other domains to see the value of nutrition. I think recognizing the multiple, multiple domains of sustainability, it motivates us to make sure that interventions to promote sustainability are considering a, a range of factors, including an intervention's environmental impact, and its, and its economic costs and its ethical considerations. And when we root sustainable food systems within these multiple domains, it makes it, it makes it quite clear that we need to be working in collaboration with people who have expertise in other parts of the food system. And it also makes it quite clear that we are part of this, uh, part of the fabric of, of these experts, right? And so, so given all this kind of big picture about connections between food systems, nutrition, and the, the multidimensionality of, of sustainability, why should, in, in the nutrition field, whether you're a student or professional, why should we care about sustainability? And one reason for us to care is that we're seeing just huge growing interest in sustainability from the general public. And so um, patients, clients, anyone that we might interact with on, on an individual basis, people increasingly have questions about uh, food labels, organic versus conventionally grown foods, local and seasonal foods, food packaging and waste and genetically modified foods, right? These are all questions you've probably fielded. People wanna know about plant-based versus animal source. And they're really confused about what kind of fish they should buy, right? Um, and these questions, they illustrate something quite important. Members of the public are concerned about some of the broader impacts of the food system, right? So you can see here that they are concerned about climate change, water use, biodiversity, animal welfare, and whether we'll have enough food for the future. But they, at the same time, they're also concerned about how agricultural practices might affect the safety and nutritional value of the foods that they're consuming and that their families are consuming. And so if we're not prepared to answer these questions, like if we just simply are not prepared to engage at all or refer people out to other resources, we are missing out on a big opportunity to guide people towards more nutritious choices, right? And people are gonna start seeking their advice from, um, from people who may not, may not bring the same training that we do. And in, a, in addition to this interest that we're seeing from the general public on an individual level, we're also seeing this growing interest in sustainability from institutions where nutrition professionals are employed, whether those are commercial or non-commercial food service organizations, supermarkets, healthcare institutions, or other workplaces. 
Institutions are seeking guidance on how to incorporate sustainability into everything ranging from their food procurement practices, their menu planning, and their waste reduction efforts. And they're looking to create these environments where the easiest choice is not only the healthy choice, but it's also the sustainable choice. And they want to make sure that any new programs are sustained over the long term, which means that we have to be engaging and training frontline workers. And because Nutrition professionals, we work in so many diverse food service roles. The, our profession is really well positioned to catalyze changes in this area, as well as to oversee training and implementation to make sure that some of these sustainability initiatives that are coming up from organizations and institutions can actually be effective and, and sustained over the long term. And then there's also this growing interest in sustainability from policymakers. So uh, the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, it was the first to consider sustainability in their scientific report with the rationale that whether people can actually follow our dietary recommendations requires that nutritious foods are actually available in the food supply. And though sustainability was ultimately not included in the final dietary guidelines in 2015, the fact that it was even included in the scientific report and it was debated widely in the public sphere, it shows this elevation of sustainability within this larger conversation around public health. There are 100 countries that in general have some form of food-based dietary guidelines and there's a growing number, like every year more and more countries are incorporating sustainability and making that connection between human diets and sustainability in their guidelines. And so um, Brazil, Canada, China, Germany, Sweden, the UK, and more every year, I feel like there, there's more countries who, who are making those connections to sustainability in their guidelines. And so in light of all of these questions, uh, challenging questions that are coming up from individuals, from organizations and from policymakers, we should be asking ourselves whether we are prepared to respond as individuals and as, as a profession. And the, the questions about that we're receiving about sustainability, some of them may feel new to us. I, I really think that the core skills of the nutrition profession are, are very helpful in helping us to respond to these challenges. So, for example, uh, topics related to sustainability often involve complexity and uncertainty. And in the nutrition world, um, this is nothing new. We specialize in helping people navigate dietary choices amidst, amidst complexity and uncertainty. Right. So, for example, uh, diet disease relationships are not straightforward. And one of the strengths of our profession is helping people to sort of find the signal within the noise. And we're also well versed in fulfilling multiple goals through food. So we know that food can't just be nutritious, but it also needs to be safe. It needs to be culturally appropriate, delicious, accessible and affordable. And so adding sustainability is one of these goals that aligns with our current multidimensional goal of multidimensional view of food. We are also skilled at critically evaluating and translating research from a variety of scientific disciplines into accessible messaging from the public. And then challenges within the sustainability space, they also require that we collaborate as part of interprofessional teams and that we engage with other sectors like government, academia, civil society, and the private sector. And again, this kind of interprofessional collaboration it's something that we already do in the nutrition space. It's something that really serves us well as we, as we think about the, the sustainability space. And there's another side to this, which is that when we develop familiarity with food systems and sustainability, it really helps us as nutrition professionals to elevate our practice, regardless of whether we are currently working in a role that has sustainability in the title or not. 
So for example, if we have a, a working knowledge of issues in the food system, when we receive questions about things like food waste, packaging, eco-labels, we can use these as opportunities to guide people towards nutritious choices. Understanding the broader food system also just helps us to amplify our effectiveness. So for example, if I'm working on interventions at the individual level, maybe education and behavior change, if I have an awareness of barriers and opportunities at the policy systems and environmental levels, this can help me be more effective in my work. And then in addition to understanding how the food system may affect the daily lived experiences of, of, of communities that we're working with, we also have the ability to generate positive change within the larger food system, right? So we can identify and initiate actions that strengthen local food economies or improve equitable access to culturally appropriate foods. And I also wanna highlight here, um, some of the skills that help us in sustainable food systems are again, so valuable in other areas of our nutrition practice. And so um, a couple skills related to evidence-based practice um, things like staying current with an evolving evidence base and upholding evidence-based practice, uh, translating population level guidance into in recommendations that are appropriate for subpopulations and individuals, and then communicating clear evidence-based messaging with the public on topics that involve complexity, uncertainty, and emotion. Again, as I look at this list, this, these things are all really core to what we do in the nutrition world. And so um, nothing new here, right? As we think about applying some of these principles in the sustainable food system space. Again, so just further outlining some of those skills that I mentioned related to interprofessional collaboration. So being part of that interprofessional team, getting nutrition on the agenda. If you think of how many times that you've been part of a team where you were the sole voice of nutrition and you had to be sort of a champion for nutrition issues. In that same way, we can be a champion for issues related to sustainable food systems. And then another group of skills here that I think uh, serves us well in the sustainable food system space and really serves us well throughout our nutrition practice are skills related to systems thinking. So being aware of both uh, immediate and underlying causes of nutritional issues, elevating the needs of vulnerable populations, initiating these collaborative efforts, and learning from people with different perspectives, right, is all part of this, this kind of systems thinking skill set. When I talk about sustainable food systems to nutrition students and professionals, sometimes there's this kind of overwhelming feeling of, well, the problems seem so grand and interconnected, and how can just one person contribute to, to food systems change? Um, this figure here, it's adapted from, it comes from, um, comes from a paper, the citation is below, that sort of answers this question of what does it look like for dietitians and nutrition professionals of all kinds to leverage their, their skills in the space of sustainable food systems. And there's these sort of interconnections here between the work that we do in education, in research, in practice, and in policy. And so wherever it is that you might be kind of plugging into this, this nutrition space here, um, know that you can have an impact and know that there are so many interconnections between these areas. And then another tool that I want to share um, this comes from, uh, the, again, the citation is here. This is a framework that comes from Angie Tagto. It's the Individual Plus Policy Systems and Environment Conceptual Framework. And this is adapted from the spectrum of prevention, which comes from the, in, inter, uh, the injury prevention space, showing that uh, while some of us may work at the individual level and some of us may work sort of all the way at the other end of the spectrum, working maybe with 
public policy and legislation and others maybe working in the middle, somewhere along that spectrum, that um, we have this whole spectrum of allies, of other pro uh, professionals who are working on different levels of profession. And what I love about this conceptual framework is it tells me that I don't have to do everything, right? Like none of us can or should be doing everything in every part of the system. It's about identifying that place where you want to plug in and then having this awareness of who the rest of your allies are throughout this space. So with that, I'll share very briefly about, um, about my own work. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health. Um, and I joined this role about 18 months ago at a really exciting time where at the UW School of Public Health, we had just launched a new undergraduate major in food systems, nutrition, and health. Um, and this has been really exciting to be part of um, figuring out what does an interdisciplinary food systems education look like, uh, especially when it is situated in a school of public health. And we are a program that trains, uh, trains dietitians, but this in and of itself is not a dietetics program. And so in my daily work, it's been so much fun to leverage all of these tools that I have um, as a dietitian, as a trained public health nutrition researcher, um, and sort of all of these, all of these other interprofessional um, connections within our team here at the University of Washington. And as we develop this interdisciplinary food systems major, we've really been looking around at the university at who else is here who's working on food systems. And we have this growing network of uh, 15 growing researchers, educators, and other professionals at the university. Um, that are part of this growing food systems team that is sort of helping with the development and stewardship and creating opportunities and thinking about workforce capacity within this major. And so I've got some of our um, you know, different academic units that are part of it. And in addition to some of the, the academic departments, we also have some really exciting operational units like our university farm and our housing and food service involved in this as well. And one thing that we, we find ourselves thinking about in uh, with the food systems major is how are graduates going to plug into a food systems workforce? What does a food systems workforce look like? And I'll refer you to um, paper from John Ingram and colleagues where they, they lay out what a food systems workforce might look like and what some of the skills, knowledge, and understanding and values and attitudes of that workforce might be. And so I, I'll refer you, refer you to that paper. And in my last like two minutes here, I want to pull out some highlights from the Sustainable Food Systems Toolkit, and then we'll have more chance in the Q&A to talk about the toolkit. Um, I'm so thankful for this toolkit because for so long, people would ask me, what's a single resource that I can go to or that I can refer others to that's like a one-stop shopping for resources on sustainable food systems? And for a while, there wasn't really anything out there. It was this sort of a, a patchwork of, of different things. The ICDA toolkit is that one-stop shopping. And so um, if you go into the toolkit, I just want to walk you through briefly along the, it's, it's really well organized. Um, the professional development tab here, it has a sustainability self-assessment and then these three really cool comprehensive learning modules. Um, the resources tab has a ton, a ton of stuff. And so um, there's a resources database, case studies, briefs, infographics, glossary. This resources tab here is like full, full of stuff. Um, the community of practice tab, it has, uh, I'll, I'll show you what's in the community of practice tab in a moment. And then there's also a spot where you can customize your profile. And so I'm just going to show you in a little bit more detail. Um, under professional development, I mentioned that there are these learning modules. 
Each of these three modules here uh, includes videos, reflection questions, and further resources. They're just really nice, accessible, easy, kind of standalone, standalone resources that are, that are really robust. In the resources tab, again, I mentioned there are so many things and I'm gonna highlight just a couple. Um, one of the resources is these tools for practice. And so if you've been looking for specific things, food waste activities, um, you know, great meals for a change. There's these great tools for practice that are sort of ready to go, ready to take off the shelf. And then within the resources tab, there's this resources database that is so, so rich with information. You can filter all these different resources by topic, like here on the left, there's all the resources related to menu change. You can filter by um, geography. So here on the right, these are resources for, uh, for Asia. So a ton, a ton of stuff in this resource data, this specific resource here, the database is like an absolute dream come true. Um, in the community of practice, there are discussion forums here, a great place to connect. And also in the community of practice tab, if you click on uh, members, you can view all the members of this community. You can view your own profile. I also encourage you to um, customize your profile and start connecting with people. And so the action items that I have for you, the homework that I have for you, um, go to the toolkit, create an account, customize your profile, set up your notifications so that, you know, you're probably not going to be on the toolkit every single day, but set it up so that if people connect with you, that you can get those email notifications and log on. Um, and then connect with people, right? Go to community of practice, click on members, see who's there, connect with people. If you've, if you've met people, if you've read their work, if you, if you want to get to know people, don't be shy. And then take a look through the toolkit, right? Browse all those tabs, see what is there so that you can you know, mentally, you know, make a note and come back to it later when you have more time. So I will, I'll stop here. My take home messages are that sustainable food systems, they are relevant to all nutrition professionals. Sustainability is multidimensional. The way we approach it continues to change. And so part of being a lifelong learner is accessing resources like the toolkit. And I really encourage you again to to sign up, do it during this webinar and start connecting. And so um, with that, I will stop screen sharing. I thank you for my time and I will turn it back over to, to Kelly. Great, thank you so much, Marie. Um, that was just very, very informative. And it looks like the toolkit is quite a rich resource. Um, and so now I'd like to uh, turn the, uh, the microphone over to Roshan. Um, and Roshan, you're gonna tell us a little bit about your work in Sri Lanka. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much. Give me a second to share my screen. Yeah, go ahead. We can hear you, Roshan. Yeah. Marie might need to take her. Okay, there you go. Can someone confirm, like, am I shared my full screen? Looks great. Right. Thank you very much. And good morning and good evening uh, around the world. And um, I think uh, the, uh, the previous speaker was uh, uh, make easier my work, and which is much interconnected. Where when we look at the um, uh, sustainability approaches for the healthy diets, so which is very much needed for the current world. So let's move into like where, where we are now today. Of course, like entire world suffering from the triple burden, whereas undernutrition, the nutrition deficiencies, as well as the 
overnutrition. So when I, if you get the figures from the nearly 2 billion adults are overweight and obese, and while nearly 460 million are underweight. So where we get the, the, the severity of the issues, when we look back in the 2020 global figures, so 400, uh, 149 million children under five are estimated are stunted, and another 45 million are estimated for the Western. And on the other hand, nearly 40 million were overweight and obese. Around the 45% of the deaths among the children under five years of age are linked with the undernutrition issues. Also, like when we look at the issues, most of the time we are seeing these issues in the low and middle income countries, but also we cannot forget about the developed countries, even where we can see the um, overnutrition issues much. So where, again, the, the development, economic, uh, social, and uh, medical impacts of the global burden of malnutrition are serious and lasting for individuals and their families, for the communities and the countries. So unhealthy diet, when we look at that, they are the major top three risk factors accounting for the uh, loss due to the premature deaths and the uh, time spent disabilities in their disease. Also, the unhealthy diets cause one in every five deaths in 2016, uh, data indicates that. So we are, when we having this kind of uh, huge issues like a triple burden, so how we can bring the solutions? So always, um, the, we know that the, the curative are much costly and we have to we, we need a lot of resources where which is always needed the prevention where easily we can bring the easy uh, like uh, magic bullets so where are these food-based dietary guidelines so food-based dietary guidelines are uh, a set of easily understood messages for the general public they are intended to establish uh, the basis of the public food and nutrition healthy agricultural policies and programs, as well as the nutrition education programs to foster healthy eating habits and the lifestyle. Also, these food-based dietary guidelines are advices on how to promote overall health and prevent chronic disease by following the healthy diets. So many countries now include wider perspectives, which includes recommendation on meal options, eating models, food safety, safety water, physical activity and sustainability aspects in their food-based dietary guidelines. So when we look at these different terminologies, even the, my previous speaker talked about um, the, the sustainability and the sustainable diet, so which is very, very important, get what is the sustainable diet? So the sustainable diet, which we, when we talk about the sustainability, sustainable diets are the dose diets, which lower environmental impacts, which contribute to the food and nutrition security and to um, healthy life for present, future and generations. Further, the sustainable diets are for, uh, prospective and respectful of biodiversity and ecosystems, culturally acceptable, accessible, economically fair and affordable. Also nutritionally adequate, safe and healthy while optimizing new natural and human resources. So when we look at that um, um, sustainable that it's always look at, very important look at the uh, global footprint. So when we uh, turn into the other side of the picture, the, when, uh, when we look at the healthy diets, so what is healthy diet? Uh, 
So WHO and FAO, uh, when they are talking, so they are bringing the, the few components into the healthy diets where it's supposed to be adequate in energy and essential nutrient to meet the needs of the consumer aligned with the dietary needs for the particular stage in the life. It could be the under five children, or it could be pregnant mother, lactating mother, or maybe elderly, or maybe teenage, adult. So different stage of the life, it's supposed to be the adequate. Also, this is supposed to be the, it provides the diverse, containing variety of foods and food groups, including plenty of plant foods such as fruits, vegetables, legumes, and the whole grains. Further, when we look at the another component of the healthy diet is safe. It's supposed to be free of all hazards, whether chronic or acute that may, may make food injuries to the health of the consumer. So the food's supposed to be safe. Also, the law in um, uh, food components of uh, public health concern, specifically when we look at the uh, sugar, saturated fat, trans fats, as well as the salt. Also, the healthy diet, it's supposed to be a balanced. Balanced how? With the nutrients should be keep appropriate proportion to the each other. And it has to be appropriate as well in accordance with the food choices, taste references, cultural references, and even the, the, of the person who consuming it adjusts with the economic resources without the meaning that its other characteristic much must be sacrificed. So which is like it, so when we look at the healthy diet, it's supposed to be fulfill all those features. So when we, uh, um, uh, as I previously mentioned that to um, overcome of this whole triple burden of uh, uh, issues, so we're supposed to bring this food-based dietary guidelines. When we look at the food-based dietary guidelines, nearly more than 100 countries widely have developed food-based dietary guidelines that are adapt to their nutrition situation, food availability, cooking cultures, and eating habits. Also, in addition to countries publish food guides, often in the form of it could be a food pyramid or it could be a food plate, which are used in consumer education. So um, I think it's always good to get about like basic understanding about how evolved this food-based dietary guidelines. In um, uh, 1960, very early, the first real national food-based dietary guidelines emerged in the late 1960 in Scandinavia. And then the lately, it was involved with the plan of action endorsement at the 1992 International Conference on the Nutrition, where at that time they have looked into like qualitative and the quantitative perspectives, as well as different age groups. Further, then try to incorporate into the lifestyle and appropriate for the country's population. Then further, this was keep on developing and then FAO and WHO started promoting the concept of the food-based dietary guidelines in after 1995. So at the very early stage, when we look at the food-based dietary guidelines, they just talk about like nutrition-based guidelines, but further it's evolving and now it turned into the food-based dietary guidelines. So when we look at the food-based dietary guidelines, there are very key features, uh, very unique features in it. 
it is like best use of available foods. It means every country has they are having like very different varieties of the foods. So we always try to bringing this um, available food into the guidelines. Then the second one is provision on the guidance on the nutrition sensitive food production imports and the processing because very very important look at that what is the country produce and how they are importing it and also we had look into about the, the processing part then the guiding nutrition education information and the behavior change with uniform messages here very very important that it's not just the education but also bringing the behavior and the attitudinal changes where are the messages supposed to be support to the behavioral changes also then the bringing the scientifically sounds and unbiased nutrition information for national professionals. Because when we know that when the food comes and the nutrition comes, there are different um, uh, the scientific arguments are there. So which is very, very important to bring up to date scientifically sound information into the guidelines. Also it provides healthy uh, lifestyle related activities, advices such as physical activity, consumption of alcohol, etc. Also, the, um, the, the diet, it's supposed to be the sustainable, we already started even today topic, we are going to talk about the sustainable food system and the sustainable diet. So in the food-based diet guideline itself, we're supposed to promote the sustainable diet. Also, it's supposed to be achieved, the sustainable development goal, in particularly goal two and goal 20, 12, sorry. So, which is very, very important to see that, like, you know, uh, the positive results and then the proven um, uh, success stories from the different countries where if you look at the Europe, like it has proven that the food uh, sales changed and the food composition, uh, con uh, composition was improved. In Canada, it impact on the food advertising to the children changed. In Finland, increasing the consumption of um, berries, vegetables, mushrooms, and decline the dairy consumption. In Iran, the positive diet and the physical activity changed. Also USA practice of the reading nutritional labels, planning meals, increase the consumption of fruit and vegetable. Even when we talk about the fruit and vegetable, even very similar uh, case in Sri Lanka, we are having very poor intake of the fruits and vegetable consumption. So I like to take another small case study of um, how Sri Lanka uh, uh, keep on uh, moving with the development of the food-based dietary guidelines. So it started in the 2002, the first edition, and then there was a keep on uh, moving the second and the third edition, second one in the 2011 and the third one in 2016. So luckily I was able to contribute in the 2021, the new edition. Uh, I was a, a part of the uh, technical um, advisory group in the development of the food-based dietary guideline. So it, which is very important to look that where we are, like and actually our first edition, second edition, edition and the third edition, we couldn't make uh, acceptable um, level of behavior change. So then after that, we have tried to look into that where we got failed. So um, uh, FAO, uh, they have developed a white paper on developing the um, uh, uh, food-based dietary guidelines. 
and they have given a kind of set of uh, guidelines to um, any country who is wishing to develop or revise their existing food based dietary guidelines. There are a minimum 18 and maximum 22 steps are there. So, which included, I think, uh, the first one with the, the food based dietary guidelines, the planning and development part. So, with that uh, important part is the for, for forming a technically, uh, technical advisory group or a technical committee. So the, it's supposed to be a multidisciplinary team because there are many people are involving in the uh, process of development. So which is always not only the health, but also the agriculture education and then the behavior change experts. So and uh, even the um, uh, the consumer, the consumer, consumers, even then the, um, the producers we're supposed to bring into the technical uh, committee. So then, then it's always very important to look at the situation analysis and the evidence where we can go back to the, uh, the country's situation and with that we can look at where we are currently. And then uh, based on that, then we can set the objectives and the define the target audience and the intended uh, readership of the food-based dietary guidelines. So the, even when we are developing the food-based dietary guidelines, there are a set of people like general audience and the technical practitioners, so on. So then after that, the, uh, the once the, the, the setup is done, then we, is, we, we, we need to start the prep, uh, preparing the technical recommendation. And while we are working on the technical recommendation, which is very, very important to bringing the diet modeling, um, exercise and optimizing the dietary patterns where we can give the proper dietary, uh, dietary guidelines to the particular population. Also, which is very, very important that the testing, the feasibility of uh, the technical recommendation, where it's not just to bring in the technical recommendation, then we, we're supposed to test that the feasibilities. And then the um, once it all the process done, then only we are coming with the development of the messages. So these are the part of the development part. Then it's uh, the second part moving with the dissemination. So we, before we get into the communities, so we had looked into that, they developed the food graphics. And then it's supposed to be validate these messages and then the validation of the graphics and then the revision of the finalize, final, finalization of the food-based dietary guideline messages. Then the revision and finalization, finalization of these graphics and then the preparation of the manual and then the planning uh, of the implementation and the dissemination part. And then we're supposed to do the training and then the implementation and the dissemination where most most important part is across the all the step is the monitoring and evaluation where we can really see that the real change or impact of the introducing of the food-based factory guideline. So I'm going to bring in few examples when we are developing food-based dietary guidelines for the Sri Lankans. So we did this uh, diet modeling exercise where we, you can see that actually so when we look at that, the, our existing diet, the uh, up to the, this hundred percent. So only the few uh, nutrients only uh, we are uh, we are reaching. So the, the others are we are not. Actually, though we do have a high protein here, protein and the vitamin uh, vitamin B twelve. You might know that Sri Lankans are heavy rice eaters, and then our our uh, major like our meal full of, uh, you know, containing the coconut. They are high protein are bringing into that. It's not really good quality protein. It means we have a protein intake in the sense of the meat, fish and egg are quite low, lower than the recommendation. 
So then again, we are looking that, you know, the available existing diet, we, we said the best diet from the um, uh, uh, modeling part. And even still, you can see that some of the nutrient even we cannot uh, reach by even doing, uh, bringing the best combination where some in that stage, we might need to bring the supplementation. In Sri Lanka, this time when we are developing the food-based dietary guidelines, we have come up with the total of uh, 14 messages. And then um, from these, I'm not going to spell all these um, 14 messages because I can share this entire um, food-based dietary guidelines with you and maybe even I can upload into the uh, toolkit here and then you can have access. So most important part is once we develop this 14 food-based dietary guidelines, so in Sri Lanka this time, we have bring in this communication campaign where we have selected more um, the five key messages and with that we have developed an implementation plan where based on our country situation, we have uh, uh, we have bringing the priority for five messages. First one is like adding colors to our daily meals and balancing the correct amounts. And the second one with the um, promoting this eat whole grains and their products, including less polished and parboiled rice instead of the refined grains and the products. The third one is eat less, eat at least two vegetables, one green leaf uh, vegetables and two fruits daily. Excuse me. And also um, adding fish, egg, lean meat and the pulses every meal, because as I previously mentioned that our protein intake quite low and also uh, limited uh, limited sugar drinks, biscuit cakes and sweet uh, sweets and the sweeteners where we are having a high trend of getting um, diabetics and the related disease. So where, so according to the country uh, issues, so we have prioritized these five messages. Also, this time, the previous our food-based uh, dietary guidelines, we use this uh, food pyramid uh, where, and then we have turned into the uh, food um, uh, plate model. So th these are the kind of shift this time, which we did it because uh, uh, previously when we used the food-based uh, uh, food pyramid, uh, the, the most of the people couldn't understand it properly. Then we turn into the food uh, plate model where people can easily um, understand because when they are put into their plate, they know what portion and what quantities they have they're supposed to put in. Also, I, I, I just thought like bringing few um, um, information about uh, the sustainable, uh, sustainable toolkit where you can see um, the my work here. I have already created a, a, a specific uh, a group here on food-based dietary guidelines where I am keep on up, uh, updating um, all the information. So anyone who is really interesting into the food-based dietary guidelines, you can visit there and then you can get um, updated uh, information there. Also, you can have, uh, you can get connected with me and then we can, uh, we, I, definitely we can work together on developing and maybe doing research and then, you know, even doing exchange uh, work. So, uh, so this is the uh, food-based dietary guideline full page, and please keep on visiting to the page and then get uh, all the information. I'm, uh, I, I started to add few uh, uh, topics and the uh, materials there. I'm planning to add it more uh, based on your request. So um, yeah, and uh, thank you very much. And uh, if you have any questions, now its flow is open for you. Thank you. Thank you, Rashawn. 
Um, that was very informative, um, very interesting to hear about the process of developing the food-based dietary guidelines in your home country, Sri Lanka. Um, and I, I do have a question. There's, there's some questions coming in from the audience, but let me start off with a couple of questions um, to you. Um, and I, I guess two things. First of all, could you clarify a little bit what you mean by food-based dietary guidelines? Um, I noticed that, um, I mean, the U.S. has dietary guidelines, the DGA, Dietary Guidelines for Americans, but I'm taking from the fact that you're referring to FBDG, that the food-based has significance. So could you just clarify for maybe those in our audience, starting with me, what you mean or what is meant by that particular use of a dietary guideline? Well, uh, Kelly, thank you very much for the great question. Of course, people are not eating the nutrients, right? Of course, we get the nutrients through our foods. Mm -hmm. So where, so when we advise to the people, because the food, uh, the food-based dietary guidelines are designed for the community. So then the people could understand easily where if we ask to eat about, you know, the protein, fat, uh, vitamin and minerals, people get confused. Even the, the these are consist of one or two or maybe three uh, foods or maybe food groups where when we uh, advise to people easily, they can uh, get the understand about because people eating the food, you know, where when we giving the messages, it's supposed to be a food based where then we can talk about when you take your breakfast, when you take your lunch, when you take your dinner and when you take your snacks, what food you're supposed to eat to be healthy, where that's how these food based dietary guidelines are coming. Because initially, actually, this came with the nutrient based and then later it turned into the food base. Thank you. So, so that's very helpful. I think in the U.S. then we have a, um, the U.S. may be um, showing a similar kind of shift um, in the sense of um, um, eating, a, uh, or I've heard the term referred to as, you know, eat food, not nutrients. And so I think there's this idea in, in the in the last dietary guidelines of food patterns, you know, I, um, identifying a food pattern that's healthy as opposed to eating this much um, protein and not this much saturated fat. Um, so that's very helpful. I guess I would follow up with you on a couple of questions then I think um, two of them. So first of all, um, since you have, uh, since in your country you have implemented food-based dietary guidelines, do you see that that has helped people understand better how to have a healthy diet? And then number two, I would ask, my second follow-up question would be, and then how does sustainability fit into all of this? Do the, do, do the food-based dietary guidelines talk about sustainability? Is it something that's in the background? How does sustainability fit into the food-based dietary guidelines in your country of Sri Lanka? Well, uh, so uh, Sri Lanka, we started this food-based dietary guidelines in 2002, 2002, and now even we are 2021. So where uh, actually at the initial stage, this food-based dietary guidelines are its only part with the health sector, and it didn't really uh, disseminate into the ground level. And uh, even the most of the messages were designed with the high technical terms and then people you know the general public couldn't understand it so that's why actually this time so when we are revising the food-based writer guidelines in this time so we try to adopt these um, uh, 22 steps 
where we bring all these steps and then we come up with the not only the guidelines and the dissemination plan with the proper monitoring and evaluation. So and so that's what actually as if you can remember. So from the food-based dietary guidelines, we are not disseminating all 40 messages. So we have picked five key messages to the, you know, bring into the community. And now we are doing that, uh, you know, we are keeping very, uh, very close monitoring and evaluation. I'm pretty sure this time this will move into the, the real community and the people will get uh, digested and will, they will apply. So these are the changes we did it. And then, you know, the results are yet to uh, explore it. I'm pretty sure and they are confident that this time we can make the change. Great, thank you. Um, okay, so let me, uh, there's a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, here is one question. Hello, Rashawn, thank you for the informative presentation. Can you let us know some reasons why Sri Lankans have high intake of vitamin B12? Well, uh, so uh, B12, um, it could be comes with the, uh, we used to take more fermented food products, like, you know, uh, what we did, like um, we make those, I'm not sure everyone's aware about that. So that when we are making the, these fermented foods and with that, we will get the B12. Also like our, the, the, another very uh, famous uh, dishes is like, uh, so what we did, uh, the uh, 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 leftover rice, so we put the water and keep overnight. And then the next morning, again, we had coconut milk, chili, onion, and then with that, uh, we are taking it. So th there are a few factors. I think th this could be contribute to the B12 intake. Great, thank you. Um... Okay, uh, another uh, another question for you, Roshan, uh, and this is, are there ver vegetarians in Sri Lanka? It seems that the fourth recommendation of adding animal protein would exclude vegetarians. So in that instance, I guess, what, what are the recommendations for vegetarians and how do you reconcile that particular recommendation with a, uh, a segment of the population that doesn't actually eat animal protein? Very good. Actually, in the food based strategy guideline itself, other than the, these 14 uh, messages, there's a specific uh, section for the vegetarians, where they, how they can uh, fulfill their, their protein requirement. Where in Sri Lanka, we do have a lot of uh, pulses. And then, um, uh, and then the, we do have very good combination of it. So with that, um, there's a potential of the uh, getting this uh, protein requirement from that part. Thank you. Um, okay, I'd like to turn to Dr. Spiker uh, for a moment. Um, I guess a couple of sort of questions for you. Um, and then also, I think some of these questions, Rashawn, you might jump in as well, but, but uh, directed to Dr. Spiker. So first of all, um, I guess speaking from my own experience, um, I'm fairly new to the sustainability uh, world. And one of the things that I have found is when I'm talking about sustainability with others, uh, you know, people that I know, friends, family, et cetera, there's just a complete lack of understanding of what sustainability is. And I know that both of you talked a little bit about that in your presentations, but specifically I'd like to ask, how do you make the connection between malnutrition whether it's too many calories or not enough calories and other nutrients and sustainability. I, I think that for most people, um, they kind of see those two things as separate 
And I think it's a challenge to communicate to others who aren't familiar with this area that sustainability and the concepts of sustainability is equally important and connected to the concepts of malnutrition. So how do you, do, how do you address that issue when you talk to different people? Kelly, thanks. That's a fascinating question. You know, just as you were, were saying that, I was thinking, you know, in the concept of malnutrition, um, you know, of course, there's the spectrum from under to over malnutrition, under to overnutrition. And with malnutrition, it's all about that balance, right? And it's, of course, it's not exclusively a calories in, calories out, but it all sort of does come down to this, this concept of balance. Um, and I think that it, that really does tie into the concept of sustainability, where if we take the word sustainability and kind of isolate it, you know, the meaning of sustainability, it has to do with um, longevity. Will something last into the future? And if you're thinking about what does it take for something to last into the future, whether that's sort of an individual person and their, their own health, or if we're thinking about um, communities, food systems, there's going to have to be some sense of, of balance within that. We're going to be having to pay attention to um, equity and justice, thinking about distributions of burdens and benefits, I think. So I think there is something nice about the concept of balance that comes into our work um, when we're thinking about malnutrition and nutritional intake at an individual level. Um, and it also comes into the concept of, of sustainability. And just when we're thinking about what's required for the long term, um, thinking about give and take, thinking about environmental stewardship, are we, are, you know, are, are we taking too much from our natural environments and finite resources and not not giving back. So I do think there's a, there's a really cool connection between those concepts that you highlighted. And Rashawn, what do you think? Have you encountered that issue in your work where uh, somebody might be um, receptive to the idea of not enough nutrients and that the food-based dietary guidelines are designed to help people get the right balance, the right amount and balance of nutrients. But yet when it comes to sustainability, maybe people just aren't, um, just don't understand and are not as receptive. Have you encountered that issue in your work? You're muted. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, which is much common in around the world where, you know, we can see it even like, when we are uh, designing the um, food-based dietary guidelines for even specific target group, of course, sometimes we couldn't uh, we couldn't reach exactly. But when we are designing this kind of uh, approaches, it's for the general population, not for the individuals. So um, we are always bringing the uh, general messages, not the specific messages. We are always, if we really want to the specific one, then definitely we have to do a you know individual target-oriented one. So, uh, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, now there's a question from the audience for Dr. Spiker. Thank you for the informative presentation. And uh, they're asking, what are some of the greatest challenges you have faced in the specific area of food sustainability? Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, I see this comes from Francis. Thank you, Francis. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, there's many challenges, but one that's top of mind for me right now is thinking back to those four domains of sustainability and sustainable food systems. One of the challenges that always crops up is that um, 
people tend to kind of overfocus on one. And I think the spotlight tends to be on the environmental aspect. And I think most people, if you say the word sustainability, they're probably thinking about the environmental aspect. They're thinking I should like recycle and turn my lights off. And all of those things are true and all of those things are very important. Um, but then with even within that kind of environmental domain, we also tend to overfocus on certain indicators. Um, I saw there was a great visual that someone made, they called it like a carbon tunnel vision, where within the environmental domain, we tend to really focus on greenhouse gas emissions, but maybe at the expense of paying attention to um, water quality and eutrophication and biodiversity and, and soil health. And so I think um, the tendency to do that, to kind of hyper-focus on specific things, it's because we are maybe looking for... Um, we're looking for, for easy wins. We're looking for progress. And, and I don't, I think that's a natural human tendency, right? You want to find places that we think are modifiable or we can do some intervention where we want to see that we're doing some good. Um, but then I think that has this kind of unintended consequence of then everybody's conception of the sustainable food system. Maybe it's all wrapped up in, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions associated with certain foods, whereas there's actually this whole wide world of different kind of indicators, environmental and non-environmental indicators that we, that we could be looking at. So we tend to gravitate towards like, what's the low hanging fruit? What's the easy win? What's the, the place where we can see a little bit of progress? And, and that makes sense given that some of these challenges, they can feel quite overwhelming. And so, um, so I think that's, so, so for me, that's, that's one of the challenges in the space. Well, I would add to that. I think um, I, I I agree with you. Um, there are so many domains or so many aspects to this, and that's actually something again that I was surprised to discover. I had fo I, you know I'm like what you had described. I'd focused on environmental degradation and greenhouse gases and such. But I think this leads to my next question, which is, well, given how complicated um, it is, as as one of my professors uh, at Mason had talked about, it's a wicked problem. It's just so difficult to get your hands around this problem. How do you prevent yourself or people around you from just feeling overwhelmed and just kind of like thinking, gosh, there's nothing I can do. You know, I'm just going to like, just not worry about it and throw in the towel. I mean, do you ever find yourself feeling that way? Do you ever talk to people who feel that way? And if so, what would be your advice to them? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. I love that you brought in that language of, um, of wicked problems. I was recently learning about kind of the origins of that, that, that term, terminology of wicked problems. It comes from actually two urban planners, like in the 1970s, and they were writing about wicked problems in urban planning and how they said in the planning world, there were a lot of um, kind of problems with like basic sanitation and city design that they sort of figured out the basic problems and then once they got onto these messier problems of like, what's the role of urban planners in dealing with like social inequities, suddenly they felt like their profession was not equipped to like handle, like their traditional tools that they had been using were not ready for those, those messier challenges of the future. And they proposed this terminology of wicked problems. And they have kind of like 12 different characteristics of wicked problems, including that like everybody has a different definition of what the problem even is. Um, there's no sort of stopping point where you've fully solved the problem, you know, solving the problem can actually lead to, to other problems. And so many of the interrelated challenges that we face in uh, related to um, malnutrition, lack of sustainability in our food systems, impacts from climate change, these are all interrelated wicked problems. 
Um, and the so for me, you know, one of the and you're Kelly, we're we're describing with people feeling kind of a sense of these wicked problems, a sense of futility of like where to even begin or is it is it even worth it? Um, one thing I like to point out, there's a great paper, and um, I'll, I'll find it and I'll drop it into the chat. It's a paper talking about how a lot of um, a lot of groups out there have used the idea of complexity actually as a tactic to sort of freeze people in a state of inaction. And so if you look at like the alcohol and gambling and smoking industries, they're notorious for like this paper outlines specific um, specific framing that they have used to say like, well, um, for example, um, addiction to alcohol. It's such a complex and multifactorial problem. Surely, you know, our advertisements aren't the only cause like, you know, taxing our product or banning our product. That would simply be a band-aid solution on what we know is this complex, you know, set of interrelated factors. That's not going to be effective, right? And so you can see how they take the language of complexity and systems thinking and sort of turn it around <laughs> to make us think that nothing can be done. And so for me, that's like one of one of my strategies is to, to have my eyes open for when people are using complexity as an excuse for inaction and just to be aware of that happening. So I'll find the paper and, and drop it in. Um, you know, another strategy for dealing with wicked problems is to embrace um, small wins where we can, <laughs> you know, knowing though that, you know, when we embrace the small wins that we shouldn't, um, you know, ignore, ignore all the other, all the other things going on. Um, and then I think a third strategy with wicked problems is just to be okay um, with acknowledging some of the messiness, acknowledging where there are trade-offs, you know, acknowledging where something that's good for nutrition may actually be bad for the environment, right? Or it may be too expensive for everyone to have access to. So acknowledging some of that messiness. And I think sometimes we kind of feel like um, we have to have the right answer and we have to know everything and everything has to be polished. Um, and I think that the problems we face, like that's that strength strategy of pretending like we can know everything and everything has to be polished, like it's just simply not going to work. <laughs> so we have to be, we have to be kind of comfortable with the, the, the discomfort of the, of the messiness of the situation. But I'd love to hear, love to hear Roshan's thoughts and I'm going to find this great paper and drop it into the chat for you all. Yeah, Roshan. So I think, yes, I would, I would punt the question over to you. Um, in your country, um, how do you deal with naysayers, people who are, who tell you these problems are too complicated, you know, let's just give up, you know, um, how do you deal with that sentiment? Could you please repeat it again? I, I'm saying in, in, I, I would expect that in your work in Sri Lanka, um, given the complexity of the issues you deal with, the challenges that you face, how do you deal with uh, people institutions who uh, tell you that these problems are so complicated, we can't fix them or it's too hard to fix them. You know, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that these problems are so complicated and you have to bring people along with you and convince people that they can be addressed and fixed? Yeah, I think uh, how it's called uh, here, even, even today, if you look back Sri Lanka, we are we are passing through very difficult situation. We are having the economic crisis mm -hmm. after the COVID and then the political instability. And then like, uh, according to the economists and the, um, the current uh, data available, it, it's, it's telling that uh, after three months, we, we might have an, a huge food crisis. We, we are not going to have anything to eat. And then even like, uh, 
so uh, the uh, because of that actually currently there was a huge campaign um started on and then people starting to cultivating full of yams because yeah. the paddy uh, paddy cultivation we can't do it because uh, the, what happened actually previous government they have uh, they abandoned the uh, fertilizers and then they asked to entire sri lankan farmers to move into the organic which is you know which is not possible so because of that actually our paddy harvest goes declined and then now we are uh, we, we are facing a huge crisis so but luckily again to as a coping up mechanism you know the now huge campaigns are uh, in the social media and the uh, the mass media everywhere and then everyone's are together even starting the cultivation so we are i think maybe we are in an island and we have this uh, you know like uh, the island mentality and in some cases the things are much easier than the other you know and a small small group and small community and the, uh, i think i i see some of the things are easier also on the other hand sometimes even with its political interventions and then you know the, the government part there are some barriers so it's always you know the balancing these two are very very important because political parties are playing a very big role here right well again i think that there are similarities across <laughs> countries where you do have your know, politics are always getting in the way of every you know things that are good for us so um so i guess it's nice to hear in a way that you know every every country is grappling with these issues and every country is trying to figure out how to resolve these these conflicts in ways that work for for them so um i want to i want to turn now back to some of the questions from the audience so now we have a question i think for you roshan and that is why is protein intake in sri lanka low are animal products expensive are there other barriers that are keeping protein intake low it is very very expensive and even very very expensive and even today like i'm sure the people cannot afford even small egg uh, Uh, very expensive like which is a very good high quality protein uh, the previously we i will talk about in my country rupees like previously it, it's around 12 well, maybe uh, like 4 uh, or 5 months ago but today now it's 50 rupees can you can you understanding how it increased within a very short period same as like fish meat so um, so the the the, the prices uh, so people cannot afford so that's a major part on the other hand like uh, even the sri lanka you know, we we are multicultural and multi religious so some of buddhist people want it beef and then from you know some uh, the the some um, the muslim community they want it pork like there are some you know the cultural uh, cultural issues are there but on top of that the prices the people cannot afford that's a major bigger issue I see. Um okay, so I I would like to turn for a moment. I think I've I've gotten all of the questions. If not, please put them in. If I've missed a question, please put it in the chat. Um again, um and I'll see it. It'll be at the bottom, but a uh, a uh, I guess a question going back to the toolkit. Um um on the the website. So I guess I'd like to ask both Rashan and Marie. I know that you you talked a little bit about it, but I'd like to you to uh share if if you can 
a specific example of how maybe you use the toolkit. I think Rashawn, you, it looks like you posted, uh, I guess a group, I'm, uh, forgive me if I'm not using the right terms, but you know, could you talk a little bit more about, I guess, how you envision Rashawn, you're using that part of the toolkit and how others can benefit from it. And then I guess Marie, what I would do is I'll turn to you next, but it, I guess it would be, you know, can you think of an example of how maybe someone that you work with that uh, reached out to you uh, used the toolkit in a very specific way um, in their practice. So I'm just trying to give people or audience members uh, um, examples of maybe very specific ways that that tool could, can help them, almost like a mini case study, if you will. So I'll start with you, Rashawn, if you, if you could just talk a little sure. bit more about that part of the toolkit that you started. Definitely, like uh, when we look at these toolkits. For me, I felt that it's a kind of uh, very professional social media. We are our professional work, we can go there, and we can put that and then we can get a kind of, you know, we can uh, share with the others very easily with the professional community. In vice versa, if other countries, uh, the, even other scientists or may other professionals, but they are doing it so easily, we can, without knowing as example, even I, I, I don't have much, con like I don't know the Mari, but because of the toolkit itself, we, we make a nice connection. And then I know what Mari doing and what, um, uh, you know, they're like most of us, are, though we are in different locations, but doing similar work. Mm -hmm. And even this, most of the similar works are, you know, uh, our lessons learned, best practices are definitely where we can easily share with them. On the other hand, so we no need to reinvent the wheel because, you know, it's already there. Then all, always we, we, we have to do little modification or adaptation or contextualizing. That's what always I am seeing that. So the, the toolkit itself, it bringing the great platform where all these professionals can come there and together we can have a very nice uh, intellectual dialogue with our professional field. So I think this is the best part of that and I really love it. So we are easily, you know, all, all our work, we can go there and share with a very big wide audience because entire world, we get connected even with this right, toolkit. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I guess I hadn't really thought of the toolkit in that way. I, I was seeing it maybe a little bit more static of there's these resources that are up there, these wonderful resources, but what I'm hearing you say, Rashawn, is you're using it more as a way to connect with people in other countries doing similar work. Um, I think it, it, what's coming to mind is what Dr. Carlson mentioned in the first webinar, which was finding mentors, finding people that you can learn from, um, people that can maybe comment, um, provide insights and feedback into what you're doing. So you're using the toolkit as a way to kind of reach out around the globe and find and connect people who are doing the similar work that you're doing in Sri Lanka. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, that's really cool. <laughs> and then uh, Marie, I guess I would ask you kind of a similar question. Um, and in particular, you know, do you have any specific examples of how you've seen the toolkit help you know, on the ground in real time? Yeah. Yeah, and um, yes, and to first to build on um, on Roshan said about the value of it as a way of connecting people. Um, as of now, it's a relatively small community and we're hoping for it to get bigger. So if you're here and you haven't joined and set up a, a profile, please do that. 
Um, but what's nice is like, I, I mean, I know like on LinkedIn, I, I get so many LinkedIn requests. I feel like they've sort of lost all meaning. <laughs> and um, whereas in the sustainable food systems toolkit, I feel like anyone who's a member in that community, they're probably someone who has really closely related interests. And so if you were looking for, um, for a collaborator with specific expertise, um, someone with, uh, a, you know, in a specific geographic setting, like you would, you would be able to find that there. And it's a really nice, um, right now it's in a small, small scale and, and close-knit community. Um, and some examples of where I think it, the toolkit can be really useful in everyday practice. One is, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking to see what different um, countries have done, like a number of different countries, dietetic associations have released various position position papers and position statements related to sustainable diets or other topics. If you wanted to sort of get a sense of the landscape, like a snapshot of what all of those associations have done, like if you go into the resources database, it's like, it's all there. You can see it right without having to visit like the websites of each individual, um, each individual like dietetic association or a nutrition association to see what kind of resources they they've put out. Everything has like all been gathered together, which is, which is really nice. Um, Cause they feel like things are coming out all the time. There's new papers and new position statements. It's really hard to keep up with it. And I really appreciate that they're being kept up to date here on the, in, in the toolkit. Another great resource is, um, emerging research summaries. And I know that at times that I've published papers that are relevant to this community, um, in the past I've had someone from the toolkit reach out and say, we saw this new paper, it's, it's really relevant, can we write a summary? Um, and we kind of go back and forth and make sure the summary looks good. And I was so pleased to see those summaries on the website because I know that um, we don't always have time to read the original research articles. We may not be searching for them. We may not be reading them. We may not have access even to read them, right? And so those summaries are great. If you've been wanting to keep up with a certain part of the literature and there are those great categories, like if you're interested in menu change, if you're interested in um, teaching and education, if you're interested in food service, right? There are all of those different filters. So if you're wanting to stay up to date on the literature, those emerging research summaries are great. And then a third resource that I want to call out is um, within that resources tab, um, there's a section called case studies. And there's maybe half a different, half a dozen different case studies right now of different examples of, of settings and the food systems and nutritional challenges. I know that like there's one that Stacia submitted about um, food systems in Malawi. And I could totally see myself using those case studies in my teaching if I wanted to create something in the classroom, have students engage around a particular case study, and then maybe bring in, bring in a reading or bring in other discussion prompts. I could totally see myself um, using those case studies. And, you know, rather than having to reach out and bother people and ask them for information, they've already done the work of submitting them and they're all publicly accessible there. So I'd say that the, the whole toolkit has a bunch of great features, but definitely um, that resources tab is so rich. There's like a dozen different sections within it. And some of them are just like whole worlds of information. Like that resource database is just huge. A ton of effort has been put in um, to organize, categorize, tag everything so that you can go and filter through and find the stuff that, that's really relevant to you. Wonderful. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to going to explore all these aspects of the toolkit after we finish here. Um, so I, I, we got a couple more questions and very little time. Let me direct one of the last questions to Roshan. 
and Rashawn, the question is this, how has Sri Lanka and food-based dietary guidelines confronted or how, how do they confront the westernized diet influence and unprocessed foods? Seems to be much pressure to globalize the diet. So I guess the question is, what do you do with the fact that American manufacturers advertise all this ultra-processed food in Sri Lanka and how do you counter those messages? Well, I think very much relevant questions. And of course, with the globalization, you know, all the uh, unhealthy foods are even, you know, reaching to our tables here. So where we specifically talk about the uh, key messages there. So talk about this, um, uh, the minimizing the uh, the processed foods, ultra processed foods. And then the, uh, you know, uh, even I, I talk about that uh, high sugar, high salt and the high saturated fats and the trans fats. So minimizing to minimize it, there are key specific messages are we have put into the food-based dietary guidelines because it's a, becoming a huge issue where the one part we do have uh, undernutrition issues as well as on the other side, we do have uh, overnutrition issues like, you know, high trend of childhood obesities as well as uh, overweight issues. Uh, top of that, even uh, diabetics, high pressure, hypertension, and, you know, all this uh, non-communicable disease where the, the, the food-based dietary guidelines specifically address, you know, the separate, separate chapters in uh, those parts. And I think, uh, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, I guess, I guess we're, it looks like we're approaching the end of the period. I think Rachel, you probably have some, I guess, wrap up things to go. So I think we'll just end here. Um, I do want to thank, uh, both Marie and Rashawn very much. I think that your, uh, your presentations and uh, the information you provided in the Q&A have just been incredibly helpful. Um, I feel less, um, I feel more inspired. Let me put it that way. I think there are times when I feel discouraged, but I do feel like um, I've learned a lot and there's a lot of information out there um, that, that I can certainly go to to answer some of these questions. So thank you very much for your time. And Rachel, I'll hand it back to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for an excellent presentation. Uh, just a reminder, there's a short survey when I close this webinar. And your feedback on this session is appreciated. And watch for an email follow-up on um, probably Thursday of this week with a link to the recording, uh, the handout, and your CEU certificate that you're earning. Um, we do have one more SNEB webinar on the calendar for June. Um, so please take a look and um, see if that's of interest to you. And then, of course, I'll remind you that registration is open for the conference. Um, we have options to attend in person in Atlanta at the end of July or to also also to attend virtually. Um, our registration numbers are about 275, and I think we have at least 220, if not more, of those people um, planning to join us in person, which is very exciting. But either way, we look forward to um, having you engage with SNEB and continue discussion on these important topics. Oh, and I should probably mention that uh, there was some talk about the um, kind of White House conference in the chat, and SNEB is going to organize its own listening sessions. Um, the nationwide listening sessions had some limited attendance, um, and those filled up quickly, but um, SNEB as a community is going to organize its own listening sessions. Um, the first one may be even as early as next week, since we have kind of a short deadline to compile our comments 
and have those considered by the White House planners. So as always, please watch your email and the SNEB website uh, for those announcements. Thank you all very much. Rachel, let me ask a quick question about the SNEB listening sessions. Who are those directed to? Will it be anyone or will it be any, SNEB any, members? Oh, that's, you know, actually you brought up a good question. We, it was SNEB members, um, but let me ask if we want it to be members only or if we want to include non-members because it kind of depends on how we want to organize our comments. Yasha's listening, so I'm sure she's yeah. thinking as <laughs> thinking as we're speaking. Well, um, she just, but, let me just say, she just put a comment It's a, uh, in the chat feature. It says, people from Native American oh, tribe members and LMIC members have a discounted fee for the, oh, for the s For the conference, conference. yes, for okay, the conference. Yes. But, I guess, um, yes, but the, you, br you bring up a good point about the listening sessions as if it's going to be members only. So I'm writing that down, and we will okay. figure that out and watch for the announcement. Good. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye.